Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 89. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu and for the third time this festive season, the team here at the African Tech Roundup will forego covering the week's biggest tech and innovation headlines to bring you yet another sneak preview from season six of the African Tech Conversation series. And so thank you so much for joining me. Next week will be our last week on holiday, after which we'll resume our regular programming. Uh, but this, of course, is the last episode of 2016. Thank you so much for listening in all through the year. We totally look forward to having you hang with us in 2017. Now, the African Tech Conversation we're featuring on the show this week is with Chad Larson, who is both co-founder and chief financial officer of the solar power startup Mcopa a business which has so far connected more than 400,000 homes in Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda to solar power. But before I share some moments from my chat with Chad, I must give a shout out to GoDaddy for sponsoring season six of the African Tech Conversation series. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. They're the world's largest domain registrar, trusted by over 13 million customers around the globe. They provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Now, once again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save yourself 30%. And now it's on to this week's African Tech Conversations Sneak Listen, which, as I said earlier, is drawn from a full-length chat I had with Chad Larson, who is the co-founder and chief financial officer at Mcopa. Chad is a CFA and an Oxford MBA who has worked for Mcopa Solar since its launch in 2010. Uh, He and his family have lived in Nairobi since 2011. Uh, He previously served as the CFO of the AfriCap Microfinance Investment Fund, which is based in Johannesburg. And prior to that, he spent 10 years in the investment banking division of Bank of America in Sydney and New York, working on fixed income, structured finance and derivative transactions. Now, Mcopa Solar is aiming to be a billion-dollar company by providing pay-as-you-go energy to off-grid homes. And to that end, the company successfully closed a $19 million round of financing led by Generation Investment Management, LLP, back in December 2015. So without any further ado, let's jump right into my chat with Chad. Take a listen. As a company, what's your vision for Africa over the next 10 or 20 years? Because linked to the question I'm asking is, Buying into the dream or the vision you guys have, does that mean uh, giving up on Africa, getting its act together in terms of investing in, in infrastructure? So, I mean, this is the interesting thing. It's like when you look at sub-Saharan Africa and the low number of electricity connections and you say, well, why? Why, why is that number so low? Why is such a small percentage of the population connected? I mean, sometimes people say, well, the, these countries don't have their act together, but really it's pretty, it's, it's much simpler than that. And, and you can even let the countries off the hook for not having a large number. It's, it's not profitable to connect these customers. Like the reason it's profitable, if there's a new subdivision going up in California or Minnesota or wherever, the reason it's profitable for the electricity company to connect there is because those people are going to spend a lot, big electricity bills. So whatever the cost is of putting the wires out to that new set of homes is going to be made up by the, the power utility. So they're very eager to connect that new subdivision. In Africa, this is not the case. You have some rural area, a dense rural area of farmers. The electricity grid has no interest in connecting that because they can't make money connecting it. The cost of running those wires out there, running them to each home, putting meters um, on the side of each home is more than you're ever going to reasonably make up in any any kind of reasonable time frame from the electricity usage because 
the usage is going to be so minimal. Um, um, so that's the, that's the main reason why there's so, so few connections is the type of customers who are not connected just would not be profitable to connect. So this is where I think MCOPA and others who provide solar are really doing kind of a service is like, you know, it's sort of like the fixed line telephones, This how the cell phone providers really did a service. You know, back in 2000, the, the, the fixed line telephone monopolies in Africa would have all had plans to connect their entire countries. I'm sure there was a map on the wall of the of the monopoly telephone provider how they were going to connect all of Kenya with telephones by 2020 or something. I'm sure they had some 20-year plan that they were going to do that. And at some point, they realized there's no reason for them to do that because the cell phone uh, the network operators can do it much more efficiently with a much lighter solution. It doesn't require running copper cables out to every last little village. You know, you just put up towers now and then. It's a much lighter solution. And I'd say solar is kind of the same thing. I think in a few years, this is going to come a lot more into focus for the utilities. They're like, why would we bother running the lines out to this area where where – these people don't use much power. You know, they can just put panels on the roof, and that'll power everything that they that they possibly need right now. You know, as as certain countries in Africa become richer, you know, you could, if you see the growth rates that you see in Kenya continuing, pretty soon you're going to have a pretty much a middle income country, and then people will want washing machines and electric kettles and things that need more of the grid type electricity. But I'm not sure because if that's five or ten years from now. You know, solar technology is advancing pretty fast, and especially the things around solar technology, lithium-ion batteries, um, DC appliances, things like that, where, you know, it's quite possible by 10 years from now, actually, it's quite reasonable to run washing machines and electric kettles just off of panels on your roof stored in lithium-ion batteries, because the technology keeps getting better and better every year, where the grid technology is not really changing much. You know, it's pretty much the same today, especially on the distribution side, the way that power gets from the generation plant to the customers pretty much looks the same today as it did 50 years ago with, you know, a few, there's not, there's not some like 10% efficiency that's coming in every year, but on solar there is, I mean, the product that we're selling right now, we're pretty much selling for, we're on our fourth generation version of the product that we're selling to our customers at the moment. And it's just like, you know, the difference between iPhone one and iPhone four, it's way better today than it was in the, in the, in the first version, but it's the same price. It's because everything in our product keeps getting better and better. So we keep packing more into it at the same price. So I could see a situation where, you know, Africa just, just like they did with cell phones and just like they're doing with mobile money, that they really leapfrog the legacy technology and a huge amount of the population, not all of it, but especially the rural population, just goes right onto solar. They just generate their own power on the rooftop, they store it in lithium-ion batteries on their wall, and they discharge it into very efficient appliances. And there's no reason to run this legacy infrastructure uh, that was used in the past out to the homes, just, just as the same as the fixed-line telephones. So let me paint a picture. Uh, governments are waking up to a boat they missed around mobile telephony. Uh, and and um, I think a lot of them are feeling a great deal of revenue that they would have loved to be in on. They missed out on because they they sold licenses for nothing, and they they you know basically uh, now don't have access to some of the most valuable database stashes on the continent. And now they want in, and in different ways. You'll see, like the Egyptian government trying to ensure that that doesn't happen with 4G LTE, and that doesn't happen with. And I think I feel like the boat has kind of sailed as far as as mobile telephony like you say other technologies are taking over and and they're they're sweating assets they're struggling with um i do see some of the political issues around the privatization of energy even at a it's a sort of micro home-to-home level um emerging over time
time. Uh, and I'm wondering if these, these sort of things come up in your thinking strategically around uh, ensuring that, uh, you know, countries, uh, governments aren't disen- or don't feel disenfranchised by what they could wake up one day and feel like, hey, that should be us uh, profiting, uh, at least the fiscus should be benefiting directly from some of these initiatives. Or perhaps this should be um, energy and time spent on direct infrastructural development, perhaps in solar, I don't know. I mean, to me, this doesn't seem like it should be a problem for governments because, in a way, if you, if you think about the typical African utility that's state-owned, we're picking off the least profitable customers. We're not, it's not like we're coming in and eating their lunch and taking the most profitable customers. We're not taking the, you know, the aluminum smelter off their hands or anything like that. Like, those guys are still going to use the grid. Uh, the dense urban areas are still going to use the grid. The customers like me and you who have big electricity bills each month, we're going to want the grid. We're picking off the customers that right now they can't profitably connect. So it should be solving a political problem rather than creating one where mobile phones maybe didn't have that advantage because they sort of picked off all customers. They picked off some of the best customers and, and, and also the very bottom of the pyramid customers because, you know, both rich and poor people quickly adopted mobile phones. So, you know, it really ate the lunch of the fixed line telecoms here. I don't see that's the case, you know, at least for now, the dense urban areas, the grid is still the most appropriate way to supply them. Any place where there's, there's industry, there's welders, there's kind of stuff like that going on. But that doesn't describe a huge amount of Africa when you get out in the rural areas. You know, you just have villages that have some basic needs. The grid does not need to go to those places. And we're, we should be solving a problem by being able to give them something that gives them a grid-like experience, not quite, but n- nearly what the grid can give them but with a much lighter solution that doesn't require them you know, running, running heavy infrastructure out to these homes. And how profitable is this business? I mean, so we have 400,000 customers or about 425,000 customers. On an average customer basis, we're making money. We, we're priced to be profitable on a customer-by-customer customer basis. And, I mean, we don't make money on every customer because we price like a portfolio. We'll lose money on certain customers. They'll default on the loan. They won't be able to finish or they'll pay so slowly that we, we won't make our money back. But then we make money on enough customers that it covers those, and there's profits. I mean, right now we still have fixed costs because we're a growing business that are not justified by our size. You know, we probably need another 200000 customers today to be covering the fixed cost. But luckily, we have venture capital investment that recognizes that and is, is really designed exactly for this purpose. You know, there, our investors are going to put money into this to the, until the point where the, the growth will be big enough to where we can basically cover that. So the key here is, you know, on a customer by customer basis, we make money. It's just then we have a big technology platform, R&D, um, pr- uh, engineering, et cetera, that's, it's sort of too big relative to the customer base right now. But this is a common problem, and this is where, you know, the, this is the best source of venture capital is basically to fund those losses until the point where you can get to the scale that you need to to, to make the business work. Are you giving up uh, equity f- in exchange for this uh, uh, investment, or is this debt funding? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, part of, part of the deal when you bring on external investors is you, you, you give up some of the, some of the upside uh, as the founders, and that's part of the deal. But we're very grateful to have kind of committed backers from the beginning uh, who are, you know, really aligned with us on the journey and want to see this go to where it could be. So, but yeah, part of that is you give up some of the upside, but we're quite happy to do that because we're far bigger today because of that investment than we could be. But we do also have a debt, debt needs that we use uh, debt funding for, and that's mostly on the working capital side. The fact that we pay our suppliers much earlier then we get the money back from our customers. So we always have that gap to fill that we use debt funding for. And so how much of the, the money you've received uh, is, is the grant funding? Um, uh, so 
if you look at the percent of, I guess, all of our external money raised, it might be about 20% that would be grant funding, just off the top of my head. Um, the big, uh, and this is public information, but the, the biggest grant facilities we, we have are from the Shell Foundation uh, and the Gates Foundation have both given us uh, lar- large grant facilities to basically expand, expand the business. But that makes up the smaller part of our capitalization. Most of the money has come in from kind of commercial sources where they're expecting a, a real return, either in the form of principal and interest if they're a debt funder or some significant upside if they're an equity funder. But we, we are lucky in that we're in a space, I mean, you know, most businesses don't have the luxury of having grant funding as part of their their funding mix, uh, but we're lucky in that because we're in a space that certain certain um, organizations find um, socially beneficial that we're able to use grant funding as well as part of our funding mix. A lot of East African-based startups uh, get a bad rap um, from, from critics who, who say too much grant funding going to that area. We're not promoting sustainability. I'm deducing from what you're saying that your business would be perfectly financially stable and sustainable going forward without this grant funding. I mean, I'd say the grant has allowed us to accelerate things and we're bigger than, than we would have been if we hadn't had the grant funding. Um, but, uh, but we'd, I think we'd still be fine with, without, without the grant funding. I mean, I think the best use of grant funding, uh, or maybe you could say the only appropriate use is sort of covering those. I mean, it's like the venture capital, uh, if it's not available, it's kind of covering those fixed investments that you need to get up to the minimum scale or sort of capacity building to get up to that scale. I guess grant funding becomes a problem if it sort of subsidizes the core product or allows you to be inefficient and kind of picks up uh, the slack on that inefficiency. I mean, that's where then you're not building sustainable businesses. I mean, just imagine if the grant funding, this is not what the grant funding has been used for at MCOPA, but imagine it had been used to kind of subsidize our customers um, payment plans where the grants came in and they said, we'll reduce the price by 25% of the customer. I mean, that'd be interesting, but as soon as the grant funding wore out, we'd have to price commercially again, we'd have a problem, right? But that's not how the grant funding has been used. The grant funding has been used to cover kind of the upskilling and the upsizing of the sales force, the tech platform, things like that. Basically things that are not related to the kind of the customer uh, acquisition and experience. So I think that's appropriate. It's, you know, it could come from venture investors it could come from the grant providers but it's not subsidizing you know basically the pricing and the service to the customer is standing on its own that doesn't rely on any grant funding at all to be fair to the critics in many cases the situation you just described is pretty much exactly how grant funding ends up operating within businesses and unfortunately it's it's, to me is tantamount to crack really where um okay we'll 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 sponsor we'll we'll subsidize uh two dollars off every sort of home you connect i am aware of some uh, schemes and certainly quote-unquote social businesses that work on that model and um i listening to you you'd you'd agree with me in saying that's not a plan yeah i mean right now you know in a way it's like if we never get another dollar of grant funding you know the, the the customer proposition will be the same regardless. I mean, I'd love it if we're able to get more grant funding uh, to build more capacity at HQ, whether it's in our, our tech platform or our product or or the people or whatever it might be. But the customer proposition won't change uh, whether we get more grant funding or do not get more grant funding. But yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the critics are right. There's That's not always the case. Sometimes the grant funding does go to basically subsidizing the inputs or, or the actual customer price, which I don't think is useful. I mean, just as an example, if you look at when I was in um, – uh, Africap in the microfinance industry, you know, some of the microfinance banks get sort of concessional um, wholesale funding 
basically, you know, funding on the um, the liability side of their balance sheet at kind of a discounted rate, which then allows them to not be as good on the banking side. Like they don't necessarily have to price their loans as keenly, or they can have worse default rates and still be in business. Which I don't think is a great way to way to kind of support a microfinance bank because you know you want them to get good at to where they can kind of stand on their own by and by giving them that cushion. You know they're not going to be able to do that. Where with us, I think we've, I think for the most part, we've used it appropriately. Where it's been a substitute for other other types of investment in the fixed infrastructure of the company. Basically, we need to avoid the Wall Street treatment at all costs. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> pretty much. And so, you know, how many rounds of funding have you guys gone through? Uh, we've been through five rounds of funding, equity funding. And so, what sort of money do you stay away from or leave on the table when offers are made? I mean, I think now we're moving to where, um, I mean, we're, we're in a, this is a good problem to have in that we have lots of kind of potential equity funders that are calling us to see basically if they can talk to us about equity investment. So we're in the position now, which we weren't early on, that basically we're picking and choosing who our backers are based on, you could say, more than money. Like what, what else do they bring to the table other than their checkbook? Um, and so – Part of it might be their ability to follow on. So, you know, they might be willing to put in X amount today, but they could go up to five times that over the next couple of years if you need it so they can grow with you so you don't have to keep chasing other other investors. But then also their network and kind of upskilling your senior team, their connections to kind of uh, maybe, you know, as, maybe as you outgrow certain investors that are at certain sizes that they can kind of pass you on to the the next tier up of investors and not all your investors can do that. So, so um, I'd say, you know, we're turning away a lot of uh, prospective equity investors these days and kind of picking and choosing the ones we want. And, but we've got a great set of backers now. I'd say we're completely aligned with our backers and we've got a team that I think will allow us growth in the next two to five years, as far as they'll have connections. If we outgrow the checkbooks of certain investors, they'll be connected at the level above them to where they'll kind of pass us on to the people who can help us provided we continue to grow. Let me ask you a more direct question. I mean, Uber surprised a lot of people by taking money from the Saudi Arabian government, for example. What wouldn't you do in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it might be yeah, – I, I, I can't say I know a ton about the transaction but um, other than just what I read in the news. But it's hard to see um, uh, the benefit – yeah, I mean, it's hard to see what the benefits of that would be versus kind of more mainstream uh, private equity. Though, I mean, it depends. You know, some sometimes um, – Working with um, non-traditional investors like that, an advantage is they have sort of an unlimited uh, time horizon on their investment. So as opposed to a fund, like a venture capital fund, that wants to see a result within five years, seven years. So if you have a business that, you know, maybe Uber's vision is that they're going to become like the global logistics provider, but it's going to, you know, in basically every last every last thing is going to move by Uber that used to move by truck. Um, so maybe they think they need 20 years to get to that vision. So maybe a sovereign wealth fund might be the best investor because they don't have they don't have to show a result within five or seven years. I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I don't know the strategy. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd say you know, having having investors that have a long term time horizon is also useful. So I could see the virtues in that. Now I assure you, the rest of that conversation is totally worth a listen, and it's available on AfricanTechRoundup.com right now. You can also find the African Tech Conversations series on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and basically any other good podcatcher out there when you search for African Tech Conversations. And of course, uh, many thanks to GoDaddy once again for sponsoring the latest season of African Tech Conversations. Remember, you can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% at trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech.
And so that's it for this week. Do join me again next week, uh, indeed next year, and all through the festive season, or at least what's left of it, on africantechroundup.com for at least one more sneak listen from the African Tech Conversation series, after which, of course, we'll revert back to our uh, usual programming. Uh, but for now, I'm Andy Lemasugu. Thanks for listening. Until next time, do take care, Africa.